So I try hard to resist one of the greatest temptations that exists for pastors, which is to talk about your kids and illustrations. I try to respect their privacy in that regard. So this is our cat, Lucy. We got her from a shelter back in April, and she's like a bundle of sermon illustrations. Um, she is the sweetest lap cat we've certainly ever had, but she's really funny. And lately, we've discovered a very unusual habit that this cat has. You see, our kitchen sits at the top of the stairs down to the basement, and so no credit to us. When we kind of are done with the dish towel and it's kind of manky and nasty, we throw it down to the bottom of the stairs. Or if I've, you know, grabbed a towel after running a few miles, to throw it down to the bottom of the stairs. And then we'll, the idea is when we get down there, we'll put it in the basket in the laundry room. For the last few weeks, we've had four or five different times where we have gone downstairs and discovered that the towel is no longer at the bottom of the stairs. It is covering her food dish. Now, I realize it's just around the corner to where we keep her food and we keep her water. And, and her food is super unexciting, right? It's just boring, dry bag stuff from Costco. But she loves it. And she was rescued from a hoarding situation. So like a lot of cats, not a lot of food. And so we're sort of thinking about how exactly does a towel get from the bottom of the stairs to a food dish? And you figure once is an accident, two or three times is maybe somebody does something weird on the way to the basket. But four or five times in a few weeks probably means that Lucy is hiding her food from enemy cats so that they won't steal her, her awesome chow. But as I look at it, there are at least three serious flaws to her plan. I mean, it's a clever plan. I'll give her credit for that. But the first is that she is hiding her food with a disgusting dish towel, or worse, one that's got a lot of sweat on it. The other part, second flaw, is she often covers her water dish at the same time. The water starts wicking up the towel and going into the food. It ruins her food. And the third key flaw to her plan is that there are no enemy cats. Right? She's the only animal in our house other than a few fish. See, she is cunningly protecting her food from her past situation, the one where there were too many cats and not enough food. She's living in her past. But her present reality is that she is functionally a queen of our house. She is adored by everyone. There is absolutely no competition for that Costco kibble, I can assure you of that. She's failing to live in light of her present reality. And the process of doing this, she is actually stealing some of the joy out of that reality. And unfortunately, as Christians, we can sometimes be kind of like Lucy the cat. We get so burdened by the problems of our past, or so overwhelmed by the crises going on around us in our daily lives, that we fail to remember the amazing reality of our life as followers of the risen Son of God. Now, most of you know that I have a particular fondness for short books of the Bible, right? Maybe it's a short attention span. Maybe it's, I don't want to do three years on, I hope we're still doing Isaiah. But uh, today's passage is found from the very beginning of 1 Peter. It's a 
qualifies as a short book of the Bible. It's got five chapters. And for the rest of this summer, we're going to be working through 1 Peter. So it's a very powerful little letter. It challenges us, it encourages us, and it comforts us. And it really is specifically addressing how we live in light of our ultimate reality as we experience challenges and the suffering that is just an inevitable part of life in this world. I certainly encourage you as we go through this summer to take the opportunity to read this letter once or twice. Again, it's five chapters. If you have a daily devotional time, you can do a chapter a day, you're done in a week. If you don't have a daily devotional time, I strongly encourage you to get one. This is a good way to start. Very easy, right? Read one chapter a day for this week. So we're going to go through it, but we will not be going through it entirely sequentially. Because in three weeks, we're going to start, uh, for several of our Sunday schools, we're going to be starting a Bible study called Follow Me, which is part of our preparation as a congregation for the whole visioning process and really embracing what God's vision is for us as a church and how to move out in obedience to Christ's example. And so for the six Sundays that many of our classes are doing that, I will be preaching a message from First Peter that is intended to complement the lesson. So to do that, we're going to have to jump through the passages a little bit. So there's another good reason for you to read it at least once in order before we go through things. I'll take a really short digression, right? I'll follow on to what Judy said about the visioning process, just to kind of get everybody thinking about it. In a couple of weeks, I'll probably put up a whole timeline calendar slide early on in the sermon to make sure you guys get the message and know what we're doing, because this is really about us as a church, not the vision team. Uh, our first congregational visioning conversation, our first big whole church meeting is going to be on September 11th. It's going to be right after everyone gets back from summer vacation. We've had to we've had to kind of schedule around summer, right? We don't want to do one of these in the summer when we only have half our church or two-thirds of our church. And so mark your calendars for that Sunday, September the 11th. It's going to be a terrific morning, and we want everyone to be a part of it. Whether you've been in this church for two weeks or two years or two decades, you have a perspective that is valuable in this process. And so that morning, we're going to have a combined worship service at 9 whole church. We're going to have a light breakfast and a time of fellowship at 10. And then at 10.30, we will begin our conversation that runs till, till noon. So it's a little bit longer than we normally ask, but I think everyone's going to enjoy it a lot. We had Bill Wilson. He's the pastor who's guiding us through this process. He was up this week, and he talked about what we're going to talk about. I think it's going to be a lot of fun to just reflect on the different aspects of how this church kind of speaks and, and blesses our lives, what's compelling about it to us. So it's going to be a terrific morning. Go ahead and get that on your calendar. But it is still 10 weeks away. So today we are beginning our series through First Peter, and we are going to start in First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, 
You have been grieved by various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. These verses address our ultimate reality. Reality can sometimes be difficult for us to deal with because we tend to really focus on our immediate circumstances and think that that is our reality. And those are not always good. The Bible never promises that those circumstances and those surroundings are going to be good or pleasant or prosperous. In fact, it pretty much guarantees that there will be difficult times in our lives. For most of us, there will come difficult times with our families. There may come difficult times at school or in our careers. There may be difficult times financially. There may be difficult times physically when we get the diagnosis that no one wants to hear. Indeed, our immediate reality may be very ugly at times, regardless of whether we are believers in Jesus or not. But Peter says that that sense of the immediate reality is not our full reality if we are followers of Jesus Christ. See, our immediate reality, our immediate circumstances are just one piece of our reality because as Christians, our ultimate reality is that we can rejoice in difficult times because we're born again. Peter makes two key points about our reality that leads to this conclusion. The first is that our reality is that we're born again. Right? He says, he begins verse 3 saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. It's, Peter is celebrating here, right? What a praise that we have been born again. And this idea of being born again is, is one of the recurring themes of the New Testament. In John 3, Jesus tells the great teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And in today's verses, Peter gives us sort of three truths of that reality that we're born again. Three benefits of having been born again as new creations in Christ. And the first is that we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is the foundational truth of the gospel message, that we have a vibrant and dynamic and living hope because Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead that first Easter Sunday, he proved every claim he had ever made about himself. He proved that even though he had died this terrible death, the death of a criminal, the death of a rebel against the Roman Empire, he was no rebel. That God had declared him not guilty. That he had been returned to life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that we can trust him when he says things like John 10, 27 and 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. 
I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. If a random person told you that, you would not believe them. But if a person who rises from the dead tells you that, you can believe him. For those who put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, as the risen Son of God, as the Messiah, that faith is all we need in order to be freed from the penalty of the sins that we have committed, a penalty we have earned our whole lives. And it doesn't matter how big or how small those sins may seem to be. They are all washed clean by the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is our living hope. And as we celebrate independence this weekend, as we celebrate our freedom as a nation and the freedoms we enjoy as a nation, this is pointing to an even greater freedom that we have, freedom from slavery, freedom from a compulsion to sin. Doesn't mean we won't sin, but we are free. We have forgiveness. And all this hardly seems fair, right? We do all the sinning, and yet it's penalty-free for us to receive that living hope through Jesus Christ. Now, I've mentioned before that hope in the Bible is very different from hope when we say hope, right? When we say hope, we're like, I sure hope I win Powerball. We don't really think it's going to happen. We hope it. When the Bible speaks of hope, it is different. It is a confident expectation. It is a firm assurance of that which is unseen and still in the future. It is a certainty. And so when you consider what it is that we confidently expect as Christians, we realize we're right. This is absolutely unfair. Because we do all the sinning. And Jesus did all the dying that was necessary to pay for it. So we could have a place in the presence of God forever. That is the amazing living hope that we have that is our reality as new creations in Christ. So as we speak of our reality, that is part of our ultimate reality. Now the second truth of that reality of being born again is that verse 4 assures us we have been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Now, when we think of an inheritance, it's usually, you know, it might be a house, and then usually it's money, it's liquidated assets. But that's not historically what an inheritance was. Right? In Bible times, an inheritance was, was land that could never be taken away from you, that was part of your family for generations. It was your sacred birthright. And this perfect inheritance that that Peter is describing is exactly what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. Right? It is our place in heaven, in the presence of God. And we've seen just how glorious it really is. And Peter uses three words here to describe it. He says it is imperishable, meaning that it is never going to be touched by death. It is undefiled, meaning it will never be touched by sin or by evil. And it is unfading, meaning it will never be touched by the passage of time. And the more time we spend in this world and see the things that are touched by each of those things, the more we can appreciate that eternal inheritance, which is never touched by these. That this perfectly pure 
and undying and undecaying inheritance is our real possession. And as Mark alluded, it's not just a possession somewhere down the road. It is our possession now. We're not in it, but it's there for us. Right? So if you are a believer, then you own real estate in heaven. That is our true and eternal possession, which can never be taken from us. What's translated in this verse as kept in heaven for you is is actually fairly strong language that says that our inheritance is being guarded in heaven. It has been guarded from the past with continuing impact in the present and into the future. So we can feel very secure about our true reality, which is that we own real estate in heaven, that it's going to be waiting for us when we arrive. That in fact, our reality is not defined by those things we tend to think of it as. Right? We often let ourselves in modern, wealthy American culture be defined by our stuff. By our houses, by our cars, by our boats, by our money, by our clothes, by our jewelry, by our electronics. And those things can be fine. Nothing wrong with that. But if you compare them These things that break, these things that wear out, these things that get lost, these things that get stolen, these things that we lose interest in, that they're not as shiny to us anymore. And you compare them to the perfect inheritance that is waiting for us in heaven. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you realize there is no comparison. It is so tempting for us in a materialistic culture to hold too tightly to the things of this world rather than focusing on the reality of our our ultimate inheritance in heaven. And when we do that, I feel like we're kind of like Lucy the cat, doing everything we can to protect our shabby little supply of food in the here and now without enjoying the reality that we actually have, both now and and forever. So we need to learn to live in the light of our reality, to live in light of the fact that we own real estate in heaven and it's going to be waiting for us, that nobody can ever take it away from us. This truth of being born again is also of comfort to us in times when we are lacking in material possessions. Because no matter how scarce things are, As believers in Jesus Christ, we always have beautiful, perfect, eternal inheritance waiting for us. Inheritance in the presence of God. Inheritance that can never be taken because it is being guarded in heaven for us. The third truth of being born again, the third truth of our reality, is found in verse 5. That for those who are born again who by God's power are being guarded through faith, that is for a salvation ready to be revealed the last time. And again, this is what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, that our reality is the eternal salvation, which will be displayed when Christ returns. And and I think it's important to realize that what Pastor Mark said is right. That as we look at these things in the ahead, as we look at that revelation of Christ, we also have to realize we possess these things now. We possess this living hope now. We possess this eternal inheritance now. We possess this salvation now. 
Quite often in theology, it's talked about as the already and the not yet. We get focused on the, on the not yet. We lose sight of the now. We lose sight of the benefits and blessings we have in our present reality. Now, ultimately, of course, it will be displayed at the end when Christ returns to usher in the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. And our salvation is that access to the new Jerusalem. But in the meantime, we can be confident in our faith because Peter assures us we're being guarded for that salvation. That that salvation is going to happen. And that our reality as disciples of Jesus is that we possess it today. We possess it even in spiritually dry times. We possess it even in those times where we feel like maybe God's not listening to us, when we feel very distant from him. We don't feel like we used to feel. Where we might feel like our prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. Where we might be questioning things. Maybe questioning our salvation. Because things don't feel as they always did. But Peter reminds us it's not about how we feel. It's about what we know. And we know our salvation is being guarded by God's power. And Really, what more do we need? Now, I would note that this passage pretty much guarantees that problems are going to happen to us in this life. But it also comforts us and gives us confidence that while we are not guarded from having problems, our faith is guarded while we're going through the problems. And so that brings us to Peter's second major point about our reality, that as believers in Christ... We can rejoice in our reality even in difficult times. Because you see, the beautiful thing about this reality, this reality of being born again, is that it remains true even when our external circumstances are not good. Even when we're not seeing the things we'd like to see. And so one of the great challenges for us as believers is to learn how to live in light of what we know to be our reality here so that we can rejoice even in difficult times. Verse 6 assures us that difficult times may come, but we can still rejoice because we have a living hope, an eternal inheritance, and salvation. Peter continues, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Difficult times are going to come. That is just an aspect of living in a fallen world. And verses like this let us know that anyone who's out there telling you otherwise, right, preaching some prosperity gospel that says you can avoid bad things if you just pray in a certain way, if you give in a certain way, if you do a certain thing, that they're preaching a false gospel, which is no gospel at all. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ says that Christ is with us in the bad times. Not that if we behave in a certain way, the bad times won't come. In fact, we should probably realize that Peter, is when he refers to these trials as lasting a little while, he's just been talking about matters of eternity. So his definition of a little while is probably different from our definition of a little while. If I have a bad week at work, I'm like, okay, it's been a little while. Uh, I'm done with this trial, right? But Peter is not saying that, right? These trials could last for years. They could last the rest of our lives. But because we have a living hope, 
because we have an eternal inheritance, because we have a salvation that leads to an eternity in the presence of God. We've always got something to rejoice about. Peter even goes on to explain one reason why we experience trials and, and says why we should be happy about that too. Right? We should be happy about having trials because it demonstrates that our faith is genuine and that there's even a reward on the other end. Verse 7 says, We suffer trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So as we experience trials and persevere through them, our faith gets stronger. We learn what we are capable of as new creations in Christ. We see what the Holy Spirit can do in our lives. We learn about the strength that we never knew we had because we'd never needed it before. And once we have passed through a trial, we know just how strong our faith is, which in turn makes our faith stronger. That's why Peter says that the tested genuineness of faith is more precious than gold, because to him, even gold can be destroyed by fire, but tested genuine faith is eternal. Once we have it, we will have demonstrated to ourselves and to God the strength of our faith, and and we know that we can rely on it in future trials. So while gold passes away, tested faith endures. But more than just that strength to get through things in this life, Peter says that tested faith is going to be celebrated at Christ's return. When Jesus returns and we are all gathered in his presence, there we praise and honor and glory for us because of the tested genuineness of our faith. So if you're here two weeks ago, you can remember those palm branches of victory that the perfected church holds when they're in the presence of God in Revelation 7. And solid, proven faith is that victory. Right? It is our palm branch. And God's going to honor it when we enter into his presence. And this should be tremendous comfort for us when we encounter defeat at home or at school or at work or on the playing field, or at church, or at the doctor's office. That no matter our defeats in this world, if we stand firm in our faith, there is victory for all eternity. That in difficult times, if we stick with our faith and we demonstrate it is genuine, that no matter how defeated we may be in this life, we can be 100% certain that there's going to be a victory party for us party where we'll be praised and honored and given glory, and then we get to spend eternity in the presence of God and Jesus. And that's our reality. So whatever we walk into at school or at work, whatever we encounter at home, that's only part of our reality. That's our immediate reality, but it is not our ultimate reality. And of course, it's real. And of course, it hurts a lot. But we can still rejoice in difficult circumstances because we have been born again. And so our ultimate reality is this glorious inheritance in heaven that we've been talking about the last few weeks. It is our living hope. It is our salvation, both which we possess now and which we'll grow to enjoy more and more as eternity wears on.
It is something that lets us rejoice under every circumstance. And that is the essence of living in light of our reality. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words of assurance and comfort. We thank you for the living hope that we have through faith in Jesus Christ, whose sacrifice made it possible for us to have salvation, to have an eternal inheritance. And so for everyone here who is struggling through difficult times right now, I pray, Lord, that you would remind them of their ultimate reality, their hope, their salvation, their inheritance that awaits. For those who have not yet put faith in Jesus Christ, I pray, Lord, that you would work in their hearts so that they, too, could come to faith in Jesus and receive these things. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.